open God's holy word to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, I'll be reading verses 27 through 40. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares Yahweh. In those days they shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares Yahweh. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know Yahweh, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says Yahweh, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from me, declares Yahweh, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says Yahweh, if the heavens above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth below can be explored. Then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares Yahweh. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when the city shall be rebuilt for Yahweh from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, and the measuring line shall go out further straight to the hill Gareb, and then turn to Goa. The whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the book Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be sacred to Yahweh. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, forgive us our blind eyes. We are willing slaves to sin. We are willingly blind from our mother's womb. And even after your saving grace, too often we preoccupy ourselves with the allurements or the curse of this world and fail to properly see things in light of Christ. So grant us eyes now to behold, Father, for the glory of your Son the glory that we've seen by faith, the glory that awaits us by sight. Grant us eyes to behold, Father. In Christ's name, Amen. Saints, behold, days are coming. Days are coming when Yahweh will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Verse 27. 
Days are coming when Yahweh will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, verse 31. Days are coming whenever the city will be rebuilt for Yahweh, verse 38. These days have been the focus of what is called the book of consolation so far. This book of consolation that runs from chapters 30 through 33. The book of consolation is this bright star in the dark night of Judah's judgment. Jeremiah has long warned of exile. And now on the eve of that exile, he wants them to know that they don't go into it without hope. And so this same phrase introduces the book of consolation as a whole. Chapter 30, verse 3. Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah, says Yahweh, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. Later in our text, the same idea is expressed with the phrases, verse 28, it shall come to pass, verse 29, in those days, Chapter 30 and verse 24, after speaking of the fierce judgment that is soon to break upon them, promises, in the latter days, you will understand this. Chapter 31, verse 1, we read, At that time, declares Yahweh, at that time, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Chapter 31 and verse 6, God tells them, There shall be a day when the watchman will call in the hill country of Ephraim. Arise, let us go up to Zion, to Yahweh our God. So these coming days that, are, that lie ahead are the fulfillment of that often mutilated promise in Jeremiah 29, 11, that there is a hope and a future that lies ahead for the people of God. And this plan, this hope, this future that lies ahead is so much more epic than what many make of it. These days, all these promises of restoration, the fullness of the consolation held out to the people of God is to reach its consummation in the Christ. Chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. It shall come to pass in that day, declares Yahweh of hosts, that I will break his yoke off from your neck and I will burst your bonds and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. But they shall serve Yahweh their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Now, so the, the book of consolation is theologian speak. It's an invented term for the hope, the promise that's laid out here. It is as near a perfect term as can be imagined. Perhaps behind sola fide, justification by faith alone, that alone was theologian speak, Luther added that in there. Perhaps after adding the word alone, the best time a theologian ever grabbed a word to capture anything might be the book of consolation, because that is precisely the way these promises are termed in a way, concerning Simeon. Luke chapter 2, 25 through 32. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. You see the connection. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's exactly what's promised here. And he realizes it's to come in the Christ, the anointed king, David's son. And the Spirit came, and and he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents had brought the child, brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms. And blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. What peace? It's the peace of the consolation that's been held out. According to your word. Because for my eyes have seen your salvation. 
that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people. Saints, these days are coming, and not only so, they're coming because they've already come. They're here now, they're not fully here yet. The eschatological, that's the fancy theologian speak for end times. The eschatological promises laid out here were inaugurated with the first advent of Christ. And they will be consummated at a second advent. This age is fading away and the age to come is already breaking into the present. John McKay opens his commentary on this passage, writing, The clause begins with, Behold, probably to emphasize the reality and imminence of what is being talked about. The significance of the time reference in this phrase is much debated, but it seems to point to a future scene, the precise time of which is not revealed, but which is certain because the coming events are already rising out of present circumstances. What will happen will be a development of factors that are already at work. Therefore, those who by faith accept the divine analysis of the situation can be confident of what is foretold will come to pass. So Judah could be sure of these promises because of how they were arising out of present circumstances. And if Judah could be sure, if Judah could take confidence because of how present circumstances speak to these coming days, how much more can we be confident that what has already come will certainly fully come? Christ was born the second Adam. He lived to be our righteousness. He died to bear away our sins. He rose conquering our foes. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. All things being put under His feet. He will come again. These days are coming. They are certain. Saints, now with the eyes of faith, by God's grace, looking at His Word, let us behold anew, afresh, these days are coming. The days that are coming are, verses 27 through 30, planting days. Yahweh will sow the house of Israel and Judah with the seed of man and of beast. This picks up that new creation kind of imagery that was evoked by verse 22, where Yahweh says He will create a new thing, spoken of mysteriously as a woman encircling a man. Won't go into that again, except for you to note that it's picking up that imagery. And our text will pick up this new creation imagery again. Earlier, Jeremiah spoke of the destruction of Judah in terms of decreation. That's used several times, but perhaps nowhere more um, pervasively than in chapter 4 of Jeremiah. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. And to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and its cities were laid in ruins before Yahweh, before His fierce anger. For thus says Yahweh, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. For this the earth shall mourn and the heavens above be dark. For I have spoken, I have purposed, I have not relented, nor will I turn back. So just as Judah's destruction spoke of one of cosmic proportion, so too does her restoration as it's held out here. As with the flood, with the exile, so too... 
new creation will follow decreation. God has plowed over and He will plant. In the same way that He watched over them to pluck, He promises He will watch over them to plant. And this is rooted in Isaiah's calling. See, I've set you this day over nations, over kingdoms. Jeremiah 1.10-11 To pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And the word of Yahweh came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Then Yahweh said to me, you've seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. Whenever Jeremiah received this call, the emphasis was on the destructive part. There were two groups of words to capture that element, and then only one group of words, build and plant, to capture the constructive one. Jeremiah would never see that second element with his own eyes. He would never see the building and planting. He would only see the tearing down, the destruction. He would die before he even saw the shadow of these coming days that would happen during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. But Jeremiah didn't need to be around because it was Jeremiah's word which he ministered that Yahweh was watching over to perform. The seed of God's ground may lay long, the the seed of God's word may lay long in the ground before it germinates. But Yahweh is watching over it. It may be long in germination, but it is certain in fruition. Saints, He is watching over His Word concerning these coming days. The agricultural metaphor is maintained in verses 29 through 30, but it's now used of something that will not be in those days. So the something will be that will be is that there's something that will not be. And what will not be is this subjection. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. What was happening is that the generation going into exile was saying that God is unjust. Our fathers sinned and we're the ones who are punished for their sins. Ezekiel deals with this objection extensively in Ezekiel chapter 18, quoting the same proverb. And it's made clear what they meant by that proverb. That's not a scriptural idea. That's their objection. God explains to them, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked person turns from all his sins that he has committed, and keeps all my statutes, and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Chapter 18, verses 20 through 21. And so he goes on to speak of them in verses 20, to speak, to ask them in verses 25 through 27. Yet you say, the way of Yahweh is not just. That's where it makes it clear what they meant by that proverb. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, the children's teeth are set on edge. He's not just. So he replies, hear now, O house of Israel, is it my way? Is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? So you can imagine the people of God, though, responding, but that's not what you said. The second commandment says, you shall not make for yourself any graven image. And the reason given is that you are a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. And God would reply, yes, and that comes, Deuteronomy 5, 8 through 9, that comes in a book, and in that same book, I had Moses communicate, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Deuteronomy 21, 24, 16. Now, we don't have time to tease out everything that's in that knot. But suffice it to say this, 
the Bible again and again, with no shame, without blushing, puts side by side covenant or federal representation and individual responsibility. And neither one of them cancel the other out. In all of this, God remains just. And so we read in Romans 2. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey in righteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for every one who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. And you find that brazen statement of personal responsibility in the exact same book flowing from a prolonged argument into this theology. Romans 5. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And one reason why not to get into the argument or the technical aspects here, because what is promised at this point, well, what is dealt with, what is being stated here, is not an argument to counter this objection. Jeremiah's intent here, God's intent here, is not to counter that objection, dealing with our minds. It is to promise obliterating that objection from our hearts. On that day, no one will say, God, you are unjust because of how He has dealt with man. Every blasphemous objection obliterated either by judgment or salvation. But in particular, the focus here is the salvation of God's people so that they will no longer say such a thing. On that day, they will not only say that God is just, they will shout, He is merciful. How does that come about? Such that that objection is obliterated from the heart of sinful man? Well, the days that are coming, we're told, are covenanting days. God promises to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This is the only place in the Old Testament where this covenant is labeled as the new covenant. Only time. It's spoken of as the everlasting covenant in chapter 32 and verse 40. Also in Ezekiel 16.60, Ezekiel 37.26. Ezekiel 37, 26 also speaks of it with Ezekiel 35, 34, 25 as the covenant of peace. In Isaiah 59, 21, God refers to it simply as my covenant. And whenever you survey all these passages that speak in this way, and then you expand out from what's promised in under the heading of the new covenant, see how it's promised all over the place, you realize that all these promises concerning these coming days, concerning this future, concerning this hope, concerning restoration, all of them fall under this thing called the New Covenant. It's the name which is most used in the New Testament. It's the name by which it's referred to most, the New Covenant. That shouldn't be shocking to us because... Testament is from the Latin word to translate covenant, so it's no surprise that the new covenant speaks of the new covenant as the new covenant. Luke 22, 20, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. 25, the cup that we drink of church is the cup of the new covenant in Christ's blood. Remember Paul told the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3, 4, that he, as an apostle of the church of Jesus Christ, and specifically the apostle to the Gentiles, is a minister of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Finally, Hebrews is heavy, saturated with new covenant language. Hebrews 8, 8 through 12 contains the longest quotation of any Old Testament passage, and what it is quoting is verses 31 through 34 of our text. 
Hebrews 7 through 10 are tightly bound argument all centered around the new covenant. For instance, Hebrews 9.15 tells us, Therefore He, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now there are many good and orthodox theologians that want to argue that new here could best be translated as renew. They want to stress the continuity of this covenant with the old covenant. And indeed, there is continuity between the old and new covenants. But they want to lay the stress heavy on the continuity. And I think the problem with that is, is that this passage, the point of it, is actually to stress the discontinuity. It is not like the old covenant. So I think the idea of translating this as renew is a total failure to do justice to the sense of the context. The point is something new, something not like the old. Now, then how is the new covenant not like the old covenant? And the answer to that question results not only in major differences between, say, Covenant theologians and dispensationalists, it also results in significant differences. Not major, but significant nonetheless, such as those between Pado Baptist and Credo Baptist, between Presbyterians and Baptists. Not following me still, between those who think you can sprinkle a baby and those who think that's absurd. The differences don't simply lie on how we come to the New Testament and we say, well, this is what Baptist... No, the differences lie in the understanding of covenant, of how the Old and the New Covenant relate to one another. So how do they relate? How does the Sinai or the Mosaic Covenant relate to the New Covenant? The major problem with the Old Covenant, you see, is in verse 32. It was broken. What's wrong with the Old Covenant? It... First, it was broken. You've got, as, as what's outlined here, how it's not like. First, you have this negative concerning the old, and then some positives concerning the new. First reason, negative. The old one was broken. The old covenant was, in one sense, insufficient. Not because it had problems, but because we had problems, and as a covenant, it was not ever intended to address those problems. This is what the author of Hebrews speaks of when he says, For the, on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. It's insufficient. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God, Hebrews 7, 18 through 19. So let it be clear in this that the old covenant is not sufficient, not because it is contrary to the new covenant, but because it contains only a shadow of the new covenant. The reason the old covenant is insufficient is because it's not the new covenant. And yet, it ministers the new covenant. You cannot miss this. It's distinct from, it's not identical to, and yet, it ministers that very thing that it is not. It is a shadow, and the new is the substance. So Hebrews 10.1 the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. In contrast to this, it goes on to tell us, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down, done, complete, the right hand of God. So all that do-nothing blood of the old covenant was not contrary to the new covenant blood of Christ. It was to testify. All that do-nothing blood was to speak to the do-everything blood of Jesus. 
but that do-nothing blood was not the blood of Jesus. It's distinct. It's a shadow. It is not the new covenant, but it speaks to it and ministers it. So the old covenant was inadequate, yet it pointed to that which was sufficient. It builds on the promises made to Abraham. It is not a retrogression. Sometimes that can be preached and declared by Baptists who are overzealous to distinguish the Old Covenant from the New Covenant. It is not a retrogression. There is a progression. It takes the people of God further along. It more fully reveals God's holiness. And it more fully reveals, does it not? You get so much a clearer picture of sin and the need for redemption by the provision of a blood sacrifice. It does this, but it is not the fulfillment of all that was promised for the redemption of God's people. It's distinct from that fulfillment. In contrast to this broken shadow, God will, in the new covenant, put His law within them, writing it on their hearts, verse 33. As you see, this was partly realized in the old covenant. It was partly realized, and yet more fully promised in the old covenant itself. So Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14, God says, This commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word of God is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. And yet, on each side of that statement in the immediate context, Israel's heart turning away from Yahweh is spoken of. And it's promised that God will work so that their heart doesn't turn away. So prior to those verses, Deuteronomy 31 through 11, When all these things come upon you, what things? Deuteronomy is written as a covenant document itself. Whenever all the blessings and curses that I speak of in this covenant, when they come upon you, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, both of them, when all of them happen, not if you happen to be cursed, when you are blessed, And when you are cursed, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where Yahweh your God has driven you, and you return to Yahweh your God, you and your children, and obey His voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then Yahweh your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and He will gather you again from all the peoples where Yahweh your God has scattered you. If if your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there Yahweh your God will gather you. And from there he will take you. And Yahweh your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And Yahweh your God will circumcise the heart, your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live And Yahweh your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of Yahweh and keep all His commandments that I command you today. Yahweh your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand and the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your cattle, the fruit of your ground. For Yahweh again will take delight in prospering you as He took delight in your fathers. Do you hear recreation? Do you hear I'm watching over my word both to pluck and to plant? He'll take delight in prospering you as He took delight in your fathers. When you obey the voice of Yahweh your God to keep His commandments and the statutes that are written in in this book of the law, when you turn to Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul. But as of right now, in regards to this old covenant, it is sin that's written on their heart. 
Jeremiah 17, 1, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart. The law is written only in stone for them. And on the stone of their hearts, sin is written. And it's for this reason, because of how they have broken covenant, that God says to them, as He said to Israel through Hosea, not my people. He sends them away, Jeremiah 3.8, with a certificate of divorce. But in the new covenant, they will be His God, and He will be their people. And you say, well, wasn't that fundamental to the old covenant? Isn't that the language again and again of the old covenant? Exodus 29, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am Yahweh their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am Yahweh their God. Yes, that's the way it speaks of it. Listen to the, to the way, though, that Jeremiah explains this covenant language. Uh, I shall be their God, they will be my people. Listen to the way Jeremiah speaks of it concerning the past. Jeremiah 7.23 This command I gave them, obey my voice, and I will be your God. And you shall be my people. And walk in the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. Or Jeremiah eleven three through 4 You shall say to them, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant that I commanded your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Listen to my voice and do all that I command you. So shall you be my people, and I will be your God. Jeremiah is adding no clause to the law of God in, these, in, in this. This language is drawn precisely from Leviticus 26 for one place. Notice the condition. They obey, He will be their God, they will be His people. Here, this is not a condition. Here, this is a promise. Jeremiah 24-7, I will give them a heart to know that I am Yahweh. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. For they shall return to me with their whole heart. In the being the people of God, there is this covenant relationship such that they know God. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know Yahweh, for they shall all know me. And I think this really begins to illuminate how the new is distinct from the old. This kind of gels all the arguments together. Under the old covenant, all those who were marked as the covenant of people of God, not all of them knew God. So they could say to one another, No Yahweh, no Yahweh, because not everyone marked as the covenant people knew Yahweh. Paul draws this out, Romans 2. No one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly. Bearing that covenant mark of the old covenant doesn't make you a true Jew. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from men, man, but from God. So, pulling from this, here's the fundamental thing that I think is helpful in understanding how the new covenant was so different. It is made with a specific geopolitical entity. A distinct ethnic nationality. And with them, the law was written on stone. And within that group, some also participated in everything that was shadowed therein and by that. Not all, but some participated in the new covenant within the old covenant. As it was foreshadowed. But in the new covenant. All. Can some still bear the mark of the new covenant. And prove not to be Christ. 
Well, the best way to speak of what was happened is those souls only got wet. They were never baptized. Because baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. And if you don't have the inward reality, you might fool people by the outward sign, but it was never recognized as legitimate by God. The true church, the invisible church, as we call it, or the church triumphant as she will exist forever in heaven, every one of them know Yahweh. The new covenant community, the church, is to be comprised of those whose hearts have been circumcised by God, by those He's written His law upon them such that they know Him. And the visible church will always have wheats mixed in with the tares, but we know that they are not truly true Israel, because all Israel, all God's people, the church, will be saved. And the grounds upon which this covenant is made make that even more emphatic and clear. Verse 34, God does this because He will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. With verse 35, there's a return to the creation imagery to emphasize the solidity, the immutability, the certainty of this promise of the new covenant, which again distinguishes it from the old. The new creation promises are as solid as the old creation realities under your feet and above your head. Verse 35. The fixed order of the sun giving light by day and the moon and stars giving light by night, that that fixed order is drawing upon the language from Genesis 1, which speaks of the, the, the light to rule the day and these stars and other bodies to rule the night. They have a dominion. They have a sphere. There's a fixed order. And because the fixed order is what's used in the conclusion of this argument in verse 36 to make the point, if this fixed order can pass away, I think the point of saying, of speaking of the mighty seas that are roaring is that they have a fixed order. These huge balls of gas with massive energy have a fixed order. And the seas, with all their fury and rage, have a fixed order. It makes you think of this language, does it not? Job being questioned by God, specifically. Him asking, who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no further. Here shall your proud waves be stayed. The God who said, see, you will stop here drawing a line in literally the sand. You stop the ferocity of the waves with sand. Is the same God who stops these massive balls of nuclear fusion with space. And he says, if you can get rid of the order I've set there, then the people of God will cease being a nation before me forever. Someone will say, won't those things be dissolved though? Yeah, and when they are, there's a new one right there. So, you can be sure. How sure can you be of the new one? You can be so sure of it, that promise is as good as the dirt that's under your feet. And when that dirt isn't there anymore, you don't have to be doubtful at that point because there will be new dirt there. And further, he says, if the heavens can be measured or the foundations of the earth be explored, then God will cast off Israel, verse 37. Again, the point of this is to say, well, the way this covenant is spoken of so often, it is an everlasting. It is an eternal covenant. And because that's the very nature of it, before, before it is formally established by the blood of Christ, it is promised, and that God is good on His promise. That forever covenant that is promised is enduring. It won't stop. It won't cease. It's certain. 
and all the creation metaphor and imagery here. Again, how, how I think you saw, this is just makes you think of Job. It awakens awe and wonder. It's meant, I think, for you to, you to go on the same trajectory and realize that the sovereign, omnipotent, faithful God who makes the sun rise and set every day stands behind these promises. They are certain. They're more certain than the heavens and the earth and the sea. Finally, these days that are coming are building days, verse 38. The city, we're told, will be rebuilt from the Tower of Hananel to the corner gate. Verse 40 also mentions the horse gate. You go to Nehemiah chapter 3 and you see the same circuit that's being described with these gates here is the same pattern that's followed in Nehemiah when he talks about the rebuilding of the walls and the gates. Same circuitous route. Now, does that then feel a bit anticlimactic for you in that light? Does anyone else have the experience, whenever they're reading through Ezra or Nehemiah, of this odd amalgam of joy and sorrow, of a kind of, a kind of nostalgia that when you revisit it, 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 was, it wasn't there? Like visiting your childhood home, and it's a lot smaller than whenever you your memories of it as a child. And if that's the case, then consider five elements of this promise concerning the city being revealed. First, this language takes us again back to Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 10, Jeremiah's calling. Takes us back to verse 28. We saw the pluck and plant metaphor used in the first part of this section. And now, the build is being spoken of. And in between, the new covenant. That's the way the Hebrew mind would work. You put that important feature in the center, and then these, these other elements on each side, and they act as a kind of parentheses. That's what Jeremiah is doing. Second, consider well the significance of the city. It was the city of David. It was the city of their king. It was the city of their hope. This was their refuge and place of safety, spiritually as well as physically. This is a place where they both lamented and feasted. This is a place where they mourned and where they rejoiced. Third, note carefully, it's not said expressly that they will build it. That it's built for Yahweh may lead you along that line of thinking. It's built for Yahweh, so they must be doing it for Yahweh. But that's not a necessary conclusion. You'll see the significance of that in a bit. Fourth, with this rebuilding, the whole valley of dead bodies and the ashes and this this other territory, it will be sacred to Yahweh, verse 40. What is this valley of dead bodies and the ashes? I think if you're reading through Jeremiah, the only place your mind will go Valley of dead bodies and ashes will be chapter 7 and chapter 19, where the valley of the son of Hinnom, where they offered up their children to Molech. And that valley that God says, I will rename it the valley of slaughter, because there, your dead corpses will be so abundant, it will be an open grave, and their bodies will be food, carrion for the beasts of the earth and the birds of the heavens. And now God is saying, that place that place of your most heinous sins, that place of my most profound judgment, that desecrated, unholy, cursed place will be sacred to Yahweh. Ezekiel 36 does not use the term the new covenant, but it's clear, it's speaking about the new covenant. For instance, Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27 I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And that chapter very quickly after that goes on to speak of rebuilding the cities and the waste places. Ezekiel 36, 33 through 36. And then following right on the heels of that, and you read the 
Remember, ignore those chapter divisions. You're in Ezekiel 33 and you go into 34 without a speed bump at all. And in chapter 34, Ezekiel receives a vision. You remember what it's of? A valley of dry bones. God asks, Ezekiel, can these bones live? Ezekiel wisely responds, God, you know. Prophesy to them. And he prophesies and sinews and flesh come upon them. But they're not yet alive. Prophesy. And he prophesies and breath enters into them. And God explains, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say, thus says Yahweh God. Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am Yahweh. When I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am Yahweh. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares Yahweh. I do not know how, with all the parallels that are happening here, I do not know how, if any of those hearers, remember Ezekiel is prophesying to those exiles, first generation exiles from Babylon. They stood under Jeremiah's preaching. I don't know how they could not, whenever they hear Valley of Dry Bones, think of fathers, mothers, brothers, whose bodies were dumped into that valley. And I don't know how they couldn't also recall, Jeremiah too said, that that place, will one day be sacred, to Yahweh. And then, to fully grasp this, to obliterate any idea of disappointment, that this, This amazing chapter ends with the city will be rebuilt. It's promised that this building is not a building that will ever be overthrown or destroyed. It will never be destroyed. You remember whenever Jesus was leaving the temple one time? The disciples were marveling at everything, pointing it out to him as if Jesus was a tourist. And he replies, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That's not what the Father says of this city here. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. The Father and the Son are not contradicting one another. They're speaking of two different cities. This is, this is not speaking of the city according to the Old Covenant. What Ezra and Nehemiah did foreshadowed this. It's anticipated here, but it's not the fulfillment of it. Galatians 4 tells us that it's the Jerusalem above that is our mother under the New Covenant. Philippians, he says that our citizenship is in heaven. Hebrews 12 says, you have come to Mount Zion. Have come! And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Hebrews 13.14 tells us that here we have not a lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And so it is. The author of Hebrews tells us concerning the patriarchs, those who lived as sojourners, these all died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. 
For the people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. It's that city that Abraham, we're told in chapter 11, looked forward to, whose builder and maker was God. Anticlimactic only if you look back at that shadow and think that was the fulfillment of what's promised here. Instead of looking ahead to the substance that comes in Christ in the new covenant. Hebrews goes on to make excellent application of these truths. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking of saints. Behold, days are coming. Don't refuse him who is speaking to you like those did who, with Ezekiel. We're all in our graves. Don't grow despondent as you look around you. Behold, days are coming. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more and I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. A city that is above, will one day descend on a new creation emerging from the purifying fires of God's judgment. Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and he himself will be, their, be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Saints, Behold, days are coming. They've already come. And so the certain of them, the, the future uh, full arrival of them is certain. Know these days are coming because of what's happened in the past and what is happening in the present. God is sowing seed. The true Israel is growing. The Gentiles are being grafted in. All Israel will be saved. This is certain because God has not simply promised the new covenant to us as He did to them. He has already established the new covenant in the blood of Christ. We have already been raised to the heavenlies with Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. And one day, home will descend, the heavenly Jerusalem, and all things will be made new. It will be a forever city. We will be its forever people. He will be our forever God, having given us forever hearts to love and know Him. And all of this under His inviolable, immutable, eternal, forever covenant. So let us offer up to Him the acceptable offering of our worship with reverence and awe. Let's pray.
Father, praise, glory, and honor be to you. That you promise the kingdom to those poor in spirit. We have nothing but Christ. And yet in clinging to Him, we have everything. The new covenant in His blood. He in whom your every promise is yes and amen. And so, by these, may we not only find courage, may we not only find comfort and consolation, but may we find gratitude, thanksgiving, and joy that results in reverent worship towards you. You are worthy. In Christ's name, amen.